I didn't have a chance to um, mention Donna last week. Most of you know how Common Ground operates, but it's still quite useful and, and very relevant to the discussions we've been having these last eight weeks about relationships, the cycle of freely giving and receiving. One of the relations our relationship with this community and uh, so we want to look at how we relate. It's always relevant and not, you know, it's so interesting how our, often our strategy in relationship is to not want to, not want to really understand it. And we have this, this is sort of a expression of privilege. I mentioned last week that, you know, it's good to look at our experience of difference and a lot of us come from a privileged background and one of, I think one of the expressions, at least from my own, looking at my own ex- existence, my own life, is like uh, not wanting to unpack the experience of privilege is sort of the experience of privilege. Somehow feeling it's optional to unpack it or that it's not good for me, let alone you know, the wider community to unpack it. And I think this relates, too, just with how we operate as a center. It's like it seems on the surface easier to not want to open up the question, the topic, well, how, how am I relating to this community that I care about? What is my relationship to that? How can I relate? How can I receive more fully what's being offered? How can I give more fully what I have to give in a way that makes me happy, brings me alive. And of course, not of course just with Kamagam, but in all ways, in all of our many, many relationships. So that's what we ask so once a, during the course one time, somebody, often it's not me, just reminds us all to reflect on this in terms of our specific relationship with this organization and this community. And uh, you can get more information by talking to me or Dave is our program host and knows he's on our finance committee and Louise is here, our board chair, and many longtime leaders are in the room if you're new or just have questions about how that works. Part of our responsibility, like in our relationship, having a wholesome relationship to come ground is not being afraid of getting the information we need in order to actually have a wholesome relationship with this community, with this place. And the same thing with our friendships and our marriages and our siblings and everything else we relate to. It's like, uh, even though I didn't want to, you know, I was like trying to figure out who I'm supposed to vote for, tomorrow, who I should be voting for tomorrow, you know, and it's like, like they say, you know, we just don't care about the midterm elections or whatever, but it's like, I want to... I want to have a healthy relationship with my community. And despite all the imperfections of our system of government and everything else, you know, I know, it doesn't take anybody, but I, I think this is true, it doesn't take any of us much time to realize that not caring is not a healthy way to be relating to politics. Right? It's like, what does that lead to? Well, it leads to the people who do care, <laughs> often with not such a good motivation, having all the power. 
And uh, so this is our predicament. Like we, as difficult as it is and confusing as it is, we have to learn how to show up. So that's probably enough about supporting the center. But if you have specific questions, please see any of the leaders. And then that's a nice segue into this last class we have where I thought it would be good and we'll have small groups tonight very shortly in about 20 minutes um, where we can talk about relationships where there is a charge. Sometimes that charge is just ignorance. And remember, ignorance isn't a, a negative thing. It's a descriptive word. It just means the mind isn't seeing everything there is to see there. That's what ignorance is. It's not like we're bad because there's a place, a relationship where there's ignorance. It just means, you know, relatively speaking, in that relationship, there's stuff that the mind's not seeing. And of course, we don't know what the mind's not seeing. This is the thing about ignorance. This is why we should assume, you know, as long as there's suffering, there's, you know, as long as the heart gets tight, there's things we're not seeing, not understanding. And sometimes there's so much stress or tension or suffering that the pain, the contraction itself, prevents the mind from realizing that it's contracted, that they're suffering. So just because we don't know we're suffering doesn't mean we're not suffering. Because sometimes the expression of suffering is to be so disconnected we don't even realize there's somebody suffering here. I'm sure we've all had that experience. You know, because it's often, we catch that when, for some reason, we're able to slow down enough to realize how much we're hurting. You know, something shifts, and there's a little bit more space, and the first thing the mind discovers, the heart discovers is, oh, I've been running from this yucky, yucky experience of being a human being you know, the experience I don't want to feel. I've been using all these counterproductive patterns to keep myself from feeling what I'm feeling. And even though it's a movement into the actual pain, it's liberating to no longer be running from it or no longer be in denial of it. So, you know, all the ways that conflict exists, because of the force of ignorance, we want to assume that a lot of the conflict that exists, the unfinished business, is unknown. So we may bring to mind, hopefully we did tonight during the guided meditation, little and big places in our lives that are not completely resolved. But there's a lot of this other, this whole other layer of suffering in relationship that we're not even clearly aware of. And I gave the example already of the experience of privilege or just historical trauma and the way it affects each of us differently. That we're just living out of, you know, because we live in culture, I don't know if people have seen, but I, I did my best at that time at least to write a short article that's in the newsletter now. The, you know, I have a little article always in the first page of the, the program flyer. And this last... I wrote on the um, the suffering that we necessarily experience living out of our cultural conditioning, unavoidably. Whether we're living out 
culturally speaking, a privileged place, or living out a position of oppression, you know, being a, an oppressed group or a group that uh, not privileged, that we're suffering, inevitably, living out of our culture. I mean, unless we had have an enlightened culture, then this sort of cultural influence is an expression of our suffering and a cause for our suffering. And because it's so pervasive, we tend not to notice the rigidity, the limitations of our cultural programming. We take it, I mean, like so many things, we take it for granted. Just in little ways, you know, we take lots of things for granted. Like when I'm arguing with my wife about something, you know, I take for granted that I'm right. <laughs> so we do that all the time. And uh, so this is just a more pervasive way because it's, uh, because it's harder to look at, in a way, the cultural conditioning. Because we not only have it imprinted inside, but everybody else who are around is somehow reflecting that same culture back at us. So it's not so easy to get a contrast. It takes some real intention, a real strong intention to open it up. We have so many different ways that these conflict exists and, and gets normalized. Like systems like merit, meritocracy. You know, this idea of how we create value, whether it's through intelligence or attractiveness, but we, we have all these different ways of ranking each other, like maybe wolves do, you know, to create their pack and the organization of the, the pack, but we have our own limited way that, that necessarily creates a lot of ways of suffering about how we stack ourselves up, you know, whether it's a competitive sort of thing or it's done through um, cultural values around attractiveness or size, shape of body or what side of the tracks we grew up on or the color of our skin or the way we talk or who knows, you know, sexual orientation, so many different ways that um, our culture lives through us or we live through our culture in ways that um, are really restrictive. And even things about like what's just values about um, having things. Like what makes us what makes us have value. Like having had certain experience, having traveled, or having friends, or having interests, hobbies. I mean, all these things are ways of sort of negotiating status with each other. You know, whether we're quirky or we sort of get status through being the status quo, like looking like everybody else. So we're trying to get status by being the same as, or getting status by being different. So it's nice to, together to own this 
conflict or this tension that comes in community, you know, being here in community with each other. And of course, like whatever that the system is, it's constantly being patched up. You know, it's like you you when you study some of these pack uh, animals like wolves, you know, there's there's some stability, but it's never perfect stability. So the sort of near leaders, but not the head of the pack, always has an eye for any weakness in the leader. And if, if the ones discern them to exploit it or, or to test it, is this my time to get to be the head of the pack, to be in the cool crowd? You know, is this my lucky break? I, I had this sort of weird experience of growing up in North Minneapolis. Neither of my parents had gone to college. My dad went one year to college. Um, you know, just a very ordinary middle-class existence. But I got a, through the Minneapolis Star and Tribune, I was a paper boy, I got a scholarship uh, to go to an East Coast prep school. And so I showed up there sophomore year in high school from a very provincial background, um, not very culturally astute at all. North Minneapolis, I think, remains today, but certainly back then. I mean, going downtown was a big, big deal. I mean, you didn't normally go downtown, maybe once a year. I mean, it was really like its own little bubble. And uh, so there I show up, and you know, I'm with sort of the elite of the elite in the school. And, um, you know, just like trying to find a way in. Because I, I just didn't know. I didn't dress like anybody else, and I didn't talk like anybody else, and I didn't have a shared background. I mean, there were a few, you know, token people from, you know, my kind of background, but, you know, a very small percentage. And, uh, and it's like, how to get status? Well, I, I just happened to be a pretty good runner. And it just so happened that being a good athlete was res- sort of a respected thing. And it was like my window in. That's how I belonged. And the, and the thing is, you know, we, uh, the real pain we experience in, is the pain of not relating. I mean, this is really the, the basis of all conflict. Like, do we belong? Are we being included? Do we fit in? Are we part? Because for so long, I mean, it's probably genetic, beyond just sort of cultural conditioning. It's probably in our genes, this sort of social need to belong. And so whenever we, and see, it's just what we imagine. If we imagine we don't belong, we're anxious. And we'll do whatever we can to sort of, including really destructive things to belong. I mean, how many of us did stupid things with alcohol and drugs to belong? <laughs> you don't have to raise your hands. Or, <laughs> or any number of other things to belong. You know, gossiping, like putting other people down in order to belong. Or uh, not either acting on prejudices or not 
speaking up when other people were sort of expressing their particular ignorance because, you know, we didn't want to rock the boat or we wanted to belong. Or we didn't, you know, we didn't want to have our sense of belonging threatened. This is from Ajahn Sumedho. This is this article I keep referring back to. If you haven't read it, it's really good. It's on our website. We've used it actually in a, in a number of the Buddhist studies classes. It's this article he wrote, probably a talk he gave, that was in transcribed and is in a collection of um, talks in uh, a book that Sharon Salzberg, Salzberg edited, Voices of Insight. And this particular chapter is Nothing is Left Out, written by Ajahn Sumedho. He says in that chapter, this means accepting everything in us, the dark side, the selfish side, the proud, the conceited side, as well as the virtuous and good. Metta, or loving kindness, isn't about finding fault with ourselves, but about accepting our meanness of heart, our desire for revenge, of course this is true for others, our desire for revenge, the pettiness or stupidity we might feel at times. Having metta for our own moods, our own emotional habits, enables us to let them be what they are, to neither indulge in them nor reject them, but to recognize, this is my mood, this is how it feels. The attitude is one of patience, not aversion and kindness. We often conf- what often confuses us is the idealistic concepts of what we should be. For example, we, some of you might think, I shouldn't want revenge for the victimizers. Ajahn Sumedho says I should have metta, loving kindness for them. And then you might feel, no, I can't include everyone, it's too hard. I can't have metta for everyone else. I can have metta for everyone else, but not that totally hateful person. Right, just, so bringing to mind, I mean, this is the heart of conflict. Sure, I understand, I understand, but this person, what they did, that somehow, I can't include them. They don't belong. What can be done in that moment is to have loving kindness for that very feeling of pushing somebody out of our heart. That's my addition. Finding an attitude of kindness rather than criticism. Knowing it for what it is. Not indulging or repressing it. But simply being patient with that particular state as it is in the present moment. So in terms of conflict, it's like the first step is to realize that it hurts. And to be that person who hurts, you know, that person who has a tight heart. Because you see, and I'm sure you recognize this at, in moments, I mean, often we're blinded or confused by the pain of conflict, but when we have a little stability, clarity, the, what we see is that the impulse with that pain of conflict is to immediately go to what's wrong about the person we're in conflict with or to want to have nothing to do with it. What we don't want to do is be interested in the ouch of the conflict, the uncertainty of it, the rawness of it. We just don't want to be there. I find this really useful just in terms of big picture things like sometimes hearing or seeing, sensing the ignorance in politics or the ignorance around global warming or the this from my point of view, you know, the ignorance around, you know, different cultural, uh, like consumerism and, and other things. And I really see over and over again, either less now about 
self-righteous, this is what should be done, and more like, uh, you know, go ahead, burn in hell, <laughs> you know. I mean, I don't actually say that. But, <laughs> but just that sense is, you know, this sort of, it's more dressed up than this, but I'll just say it in a more provocative way. Karma will take care of this, you know. What get you know what has what is getting sown? There will be fruits to be received, and uh, and it's not going to be pretty. And but see that you see how that actually is a way of avoiding the unpleasantness of being in this confusing place. Like actually, as a living being, it's confusing to know how to show up when things are this, from my point of view, are this messy. But just because it's confusing doesn't mean that the right way to deal with this conflict my, I have in my heart is to either put people in boxes on the one hand or withdraw on the other hand in some way. So how can we... Well, in order to be right in the middle, I have to be unafraid of that yucky feeling. And part of that yucky feeling is knowing that I don't know how to, how to be, how to respond. But that's the first step in seeing what can be done, is knowing, like acknowledging the truth of confusion and ambiguity and uncertainty, which is really at the heart of so many of our one-to-one relationships or relationship. You know, I mean, I have this in so many places with, you know, what to do, I mentioned this earlier, like what to do with investments, you know, like wanting to be a good citizen, but what do you do with your savings? Or what do you do with, you know, turning on light switches or using water or, I mean, even, heck, I was in California over the weekend and it is so dry there. And we were in a dry part of the state uh, near the Mojave Desert. Uh, and it's like not wanting to flush the toilet, like, but people are going to think I leave my pee in the water and they're going to think, what, well, he's not mindful. <laughs> you know, it's like, even something like that, it's like, how, how do you show up for something like that? He says at the end of this section, I have rather than just being caught up in aversion to myself. <clears throat> Oops, that's the beginning of the sentence here. If we actually practice this, what is the result? In my experience, I find I'm no longer making problems around my faults and weaknesses. I'm not hating myself continuously for not being able to live up to my high ideals of what I should be. Now remember, Half of us are hating ourselves and half of us are hating the other person. It's really the same movement whether we're disgusted with ourselves or disgusted with the other or go back and forth. And then he says, I'm not hating myself continuously for not being able to live up to my high ideals of what I should be. I'm able to hear with some of the emotions. I'm able to hear... Page right, 71, yeah. I'm able to hear with some of the emotions and reactions I have rather than just being caught up in aversion to myself. When we do this, those negative reactions fade out. We are no longer 
making a karmic connection to them, to them. We are letting them go rather than getting entangled in them. So there is a feeling of greater ease. We are developing a proper attitude toward ourselves. And this is the thing with conflict. If we can if we're willing to inhabit that the pain of the conflict, like what is actually charged or unresolved in our lives, in all of our many, many relationships, many overlapping relationships, if we're able to inhabit the actual space, the actual tone of the heart, then we'll see that in any moment we're either revving up the conflict or it's unwinding. And the charging it up, the intensification or greater constriction and the release of that constriction all has to do with how the mind is relating. So this is how we begin to understand reconciliation. I mean, as I'm sure all of you know, there are a lot of ideas about reconciliation, conflict resolution, healing, trauma, uh, undoing racism, undoing this and that, fixing problems. There is, There are countless things. And it doesn't mean we can't learn from those things. But the real way we learn, even if we start out by reading a book on conflict resolution or having a healthy marriage or whatever version, place we dig in, ultimately it's going to come to this place where in relationship, whether actually with that person or in that community or just alone, thinking about it, feeling it, if we can inhabit that space, because like we talked about in the first couple of weeks, the relationship is here in our heart anyway. And we can see how the conflict is getting fed, the fire is being fed, how the fire can be cooled. What does the mind do? What is the mind doing when things get more intense, more contracted? What is the mind doing when there's an unwinding and a cooling down? The Buddha talked about this, and many of you know, you know, in terms of right speech, which we'll cover in later classes, about how to, you know, there's a section actually, maybe I'll just share this before we break. It's the Buddhist criteria for admonishing another monk or nun. How to admonish another skillfully. So it's in the context of monks and nuns, but we can just, just as I'm reading, do the translation to what this might look like in lay life. Oh, practitioners, a practitioner who desires to admonish another should do so after investigating five conditions in oneself and after establishing five other conditions in oneself. What are the five conditions which one should investigate in oneself? Am I one who practices purity in action, flawless, untainted? So my actions aren't causing harm. That's the first thing one should investigate. Am I one who practices purity in speech, flawless and untainted? Is the heart of goodwill, is the heart of goodwill free from malice established in me towards others? Am I or am I not one who has heard 
who's bared in mind what one's heard, stored up what one has heard, those teaching which are good in the beginning, middle, and end. Right? So skillful teachings. Have I listened? Have I reflected? Have I memorized? Have I practiced? Have I understood? Have I done my work, basically? And then the fifth are the rules of conduct. So for us as lay people, you know, undertaking the training not to harm, like really working with the training, the training not to take what isn't given, the training not to engage in sexual misconduct, false speech, intoxication of the mind. Are these rules of conduct thoroughly learned by heart, well analyzed, clearly um, understood and developed in my life? These five conditions must be investigated in oneself. And then the Buddha says, and what other five conditions must be established in oneself? Do I speak at the right time or not? Do I speak the truth or not? Do I speak gently or harshly? Do I speak words that are profitable or functional or useful? Do I speak with a kindly heart? O practitioners, these five conditions are to be investigated in oneself and later established in oneself by a practitioner who desires to admonish another. It always seems to make sense. But what we can do, because otherwise, you know, those are pretty high criteria and we might never do anything if we... because it's not easy to live up. But what we can begin to do, instead of admonishing another what we can do is we can have a relationship with another person. And part of the basis of that relationship is to, in little or big ways, acknowledge that it isn't easy being in relationship with you, you know, to find a way. It isn't always easy to be in relationship with you. And together, to find a way to say, and the reason it isn't easy to be in relationship with you is that conflict is inevitable because you have needs and I have needs. And sometimes our needs conflict. They're not, they don't line up just right. Like me pursuing my needs gets in the way of you pursuing your needs. I want the temperature at 68. You want the temperature at 75 or something like that. And so, but what we can do is we can acknowledge that as a living being, we both have needs, desires, we can make sure that each of us, each of us understands our own needs and ask the other person to know what my needs are. Can you repeat them back to me? You know, what are your needs? Okay, let me see if I got that right. I heard you say, these are your needs. So we just start there, that inevitably, as two living beings, or me and this community, or this community and this community, so at any, that we all have needs. And let's talk about what those needs are. Because like we all have needs around what common ground can do for us. But there's no way this center, this organization is going to... But we can start by just having ways of hearing that we have different needs. I have needs in the organization. You guys, folks, have needs in the organization. And we can be really like, that's okay to have needs. And they may or may not get met. But we can start there acknowledging that this is just normal for us to have needs. And as we talk about our needs, some might seem like, oh yeah, this is a need that I, it's really hard for me to put down. 
or maybe this need I can let go of. And we might find ways to sort of take care of each other's needs, like taking turns. Let's take care of your need first, and then it will be my turn, and we'll take care of my need. Or this time we'll do it this way, and this time we'll do it this other way. So this is what mindfulness can really do to support difference and conflict, is to learn, you know, that this, as a, on a very ordinary level, kind of conventional level, the personality, the sort of momentum of culture and the mental conditioning, the, of the condition of this mind, it's just all these different perceived needs. And we don't even have to decide, like, if they're an actual need or just... No, they're just perceived needs. And that doesn't mean that I'll die, I wouldn't die if I don't get that. I might, but from my subjective experience, it's just a perceived need that I have. And then if I really get clear about that, it's pretty obvious that you probably have perceived needs too. Because you're like me. And that this is going to be challenging for us, all with our perceived needs. And we can just talk about that. And just see what works. And just keep acknowledging our pain, you know, that all of our needs aren't getting met. And this is really important to understand about the path, and I'll have to leave it here, that this whole path that the Buddha articulated, you know, this ancient path, it's not the Buddhist path, it's just a path of human common sense that the Buddha was really good at articulating, how to use awareness to develop wisdom, clarity, so that this life can live in accordance with the way it is. That's called human common sense. And the Buddha's articulation of that common sense we call Buddhism, you know, the teachings of the Buddha. That it's not about resolving the conflict, it's about understanding the inevitability of conflict. That's just how it is. The world is messy in that way. And that the real resolution is the honesty about it, the clarity about it. That, and not looking for an end to it, but being free in it, being free in the messiness, being free in the experience of having needs, some of which are being met, some of which aren't being met. And not being like not falling into some idea that I just need to give up on ha having needs. Because there's no way, in being a human being, we can give up on having needs. And there's no way we can get all our needs met. And that's the dynamic that we find freedom like that, that profound acceptance of that, and acceptance that that's where everybody else is at too. So not expecting other people to sort of be in a different place 